Lemon, lime, and a drop of cherry make a simple Shirley. But what happens when Tito's handmade vodka reveals this sweet sipper's dirty secret? Stir up a Tito's dirty Sherlock and crack the case with Tito's at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no heart, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. It's me, Lindsay. It's you, Lindsay. It's me. I'm going to work on keeping my uh, pace not too fast today because I am buzzing Uh-oh. on caffeine. You had too much, too much coffee? I only had about a third of a cup, but it, it's, uh, <laughs> it is crazy how much different one roast of coffee can be strength-wise than another. Sure. And I found this just crack coffee at the uh, CDA Coffee Company downtown, the light roast, like every other roast, normal, uh-huh. any other place in town. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I can drink a cup of coffee and I don't, maybe I feel a tiny bit more alert, but not really. Okay. And this stuff I have, oh, maybe like an inch down on the cup and I'm like, ring. I feel like I'm floating around, do like you, I'm vibrating. Do you opt to get a smaller coffee? No. Well, that's dumb. I get the I get the twenty ounce, and then but then I just ration it throughout the day. Do you ever even finish it? Yeah, uh, depends on how much work I have to do. But like one twenty ounce of these coffees, I can work on the computer pretty much nonstop, just like um like a savant for probably fifteen hours straight. Well, very inc- very impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Do you know why? Regular coffee actually doesn't do much for you anymore. Because I'm addicted to coffee. Ring! <laughs> because you have overstressed your adrenal glands. <laughs> what, what is this stuff doing to my adrenal glands? Then? Yeah, it's fucking you up. If it takes that that mm-hmm. that amount of caffeine for you to feel anything, mm-hmm. you are ingesting way too much caffeine. It no longer has an effect. It's just like any other drug. You know, mm-hmm. you do it for a while. Okay, like drinking. You're really right? kind of bumming me out right now. I was all excited. <laughs> I don't want to bum you out. I want to create some awareness <laughs> around this situation. Okay. I just, you know, maybe mm-hmm. if you don't notice anything drinking other coffees, why are you drinking it? Because I need something to keep me going. But if it, but you just said it doesn't do anything well, for but you. A little bit. Uh, it makes me a little bit less tired. I, I also drink lots of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I hear you. I hear you. Just be careful. Okay. Like well, I like doing this show with you. I would like you to not have a mm-hmm. heart attack. I would like you to not wear yourself out. Before I, got, before I go into announcements, I got one more word for you. Ring! <laughs> Another. <laughs> I want 
you to remember this. The next time I have caffeine I before recording, and you're like, "Ugh, I'm are getting, you hopped up?" I'm getting it out now, so I can okay. so I can smooth, smoothly go into the horror stories. Because I'm very excited about them today, as as always. And uh, but also, you can be especially excited. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And and uh, also excited for the April 22nd Scared to Death live show. Another yes. reminder. Uh, yes. Next Thursday, ooh, April ooh, 22nd. Ooh, that's the day. 6 p.m. Pacific time. The virtual doors open for a 6:30 p.m. Pacific time showtime. Uh, recorded today's episode weeks ago. The turnout already looks like it's going to be good. So yay. yay! Thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, again, the show will be interactive with your chance to participate in a live chat, polls, and a Q and A at the end of the show, all at Looped.com. And the stories we are, we are going to tell will only be told during this show. Correct. And then uh, just like a live show for your favorite band, we will have limited edition Scared to Death live merch, STD live tea and hoodie, uh, La Llorona tea, a mug, lots of fun stuff. Very cool. Tickets available at badmagicmerch.com. You'll get your show access link roughly 72 hours before the show. Mm-hmm. Unless you buy your ticket within 72 hours of the show, mm-hmm. then you should get it immediately. Correct. And that link will allow you to rewatch the show for 72 hours afterwards. So a lot of 72s. Ta-da. <laughs> Ta-da. Uh, don't know how much we're giving this month yet to our Bad Magic Productions monthly charity, but we do know what charity we're giving to. This month, we're donating to a nonprofit that may sound familiar to you, the St. Bernard Project, a.k.a. SBP. Thanks to your support, we'll be donating over $12,500 to help those in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana as they continue to work on the recovery from the winter storm, Uri. Uh, The SBP, the more funds they receive, the more they will be able to assist in helping low-income homeowners who generally have the least amount of access to resources SPB volunteers on the ground right now in Houston and southwest Louisiana repairing damage caused by burst pipes for those impacted by the storm, providing mucking, gutting, and mold remediation services, replacing drywall, repairing damaged pipes, so much more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you for letting us uh, give you know more and more back each each month to great causes, and thanks to the Roberts and Annabelles for making that possible. Woohoo! And now, story time. Okay. How many stories do you have today? I have two. I have two as well. Are you surprised I have two? Uh, sometimes you have three a fair amount. Sometimes I have three. You Occasionally I have one big one. Can you give us any hints to, as to what these stories are about or well, no? Should it be surprises? No. Um, the first, both of them are a little not traditional because, yeah. you know, here at Scared to Death, we like to mix it up and really explore all the variations of what could or could not be true, right? Yeah. Kind of exploring that space. So we have one story that takes place camping okay. and it is pretty nightmarish. And then the second one is oh yeah this story it's it's kind of heavy to be quite honest but it is like man if spirits or ghosts or whatever can cause physical harm to you Mm -hmm. this is would be a whole new way for them to do it okay in my opinion all right Interesting. I'm intrigued because mm-hmm. we've covered so many stories here. To, I know. I was like getting new stuff still. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the Both of these, but uh, specifically the second one, really, I was like, oh, I never thought about that. All right. I like it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you have? Uh, I have two stories, the uh, little one and a big one. Uh, the first one is the big story. Okay. And the first story, I, could, I couldn't believe I'd never heard of this before. It's the first documented case of poltergeist activity taking place in one of America's government housing projects. Mm. It's been called the Project Poltergeist. The strange tale of a lot of paranormal activity following young Ernie Rivers. Uh, it already makes me sad because, I mean, I grew up poor, but I mm-hmm. didn't grow up that kind of poor, yeah. like in that specific kind of scenario. Um, 
And like you're just stuck. Yeah, this is intense. A lot of documentation, and it looks like this uh, story is going to be made into a movie. Wow! Uh, I'll talk oh. about that after the show, and uh, maybe this year it sounds like, or maybe next year. I immediately hope that the family was compensated and mm. was able to in- improve their situation because it happened a long time ago. So oh. I mean, this this starts off in the early '60s. Okay, well, so listen, a, I'm always positive, Polly, yeah. and I want things to be better for people. Uh, yes. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second story I have is a lot smaller. We return again to Japan. Oh. Uh, look at numerous claims of people encountering spirits who don't seem to know they're dead mm. along Japan's coast after the devastating 2011 tsunami oh. that took so many lives there. Did this we talk about this? Somebody suggested this. That they were like, what about that? And I was like, oh, yeah. How could I have not? How could we have not covered the post tsunami? Uh, I don't think we have. We did ghost ships last no, week. No, I know, but did you and I have a conversation oh, about... Oh, yes, possibly, possibly. I was like, wow, that sounds weirdly familiar. I think that was my idea. I don't <laughs> I don't think it was. Uh, are you ready for my first story? Uh-huh. Can I talk about my socks? You can. Okay. Because this, this one is a big one. It has no setup. This little bunny. Oh, no. His ears... Oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. Yeek. I went for the He's yellow. He ripped his ear off. <laughs> well, the other one fell off previously. I was going for yellow for spring because... It, hmm? It's that time of year. Exactly. Oh, man. Okay, well, I've got one... My favorite season. Bunny ear. Really? Yeah, I like spring because then I get to look forward to summer and fall. Oh, interesting. Fall's pretty, but it bums me out because winter's coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. But I do like winter a little more now. Now that, I, now now that, that you're a skier? Ooh. Now that I'm a fancy green green run skier. Ooh, look at you go. Okay, I'm ready. I'm going <laughs> to okay. keep this bunny ear, okay? All right, just going to jump right in. Time now for the tale of Ernie Rivers Poltergeist. May 6th, 1961, New Jersey. On the evening of his 13th birthday, Ernie Rivers, shy and serious, is playing alone in his bedroom in an apartment in the Felix Fold Housing Development, a notoriously crime-ridden government housing project, a project that seems to have been shut down for several years now. His grandmother, Mabel Clark, is doing some cleaning in her bedroom. And as she cleans, a glass jar on top of a dresser on the opposite side of her room violently crashes to the floor and shatters. Mabel is shaken for a moment. No one was near the jar when it fell. There was no earthquake. She hadn't felt the room move. The jar just seemed to have moved on its own. She cleans up the broken glass and does her best to brush off the incident. Ernie hears the crash from his room and doesn't think much of it. He has no reason at this point to suspect anything other than his grandmother dropping something. Two days later, on May 8th, Ernie and Mabel are eating in the kitchen when six punch bowl cups in the living room A room connected by an open doorway to the kitchen come off their hooks on the wall and crash to the floor, one after the other. One falls, then a second later, the next falls, and so on. As if some invisible person was walking along the wall and flicking them off. But of course, no one is there. Mabel later recalled, that's when it really started. Everything started smashing, smashing, smashing. Smashing. Later that evening, several bottles in the empty bathroom fall to the floor and shatter. And then a bottle of antiseptic stored in the medicine cabinet flies all the way into the living room and lands on the floor as if someone had thrown it from the empty bathroom. Oh my gosh. Stunned, Mabel, now afraid, cautiously walks towards the bathroom only to find the door closed. Pushing her fear aside, she throws open the door and rushes in to take down the remaining bottles, containers, and items from the medicine cabinet and place them on the floor. And while she's in the bathroom, while she can't see anyone else in the room with her, she does not feel alone. She feels like someone is in the bathroom with her and that someone is watching her. 
When a neighbor stops by later that day, Mabel, still spooked, tries to pretend everything is okay. But then, while Mabel, her grandson Ernie, and this neighbor, Yetta Mandel, are all chatting over the hum of the television in the background, a cologne bottle suddenly flies from the bathroom, darts on its own into the living room, zigzagging in mid-air before finally shattering against the floor. What the hell? A frightened Yetta will later tell a journalist that she saw it, quote, turning a jig in the air. The air then became filled with the cologne's strong scent. Next, Yetta watches a glass decanter begin moving by itself to the edge of the refrigerator. She runs over and catches it just before it falls to the floor. What is happening? Mabel now tells Yetta about other incidents that have been occurring over the past two days. As she talks, a lamp in the living room spontaneously shatters and a cold presence fills the apartment. All three of the people inside are filled with terror. Yetta runs home, and Mabel and Ernie flee the project apartment and stay elsewhere for the night. But then they return the next day. They just didn't have anywhere else to go. They weren't living in government housing because they had a lot of options. A project apartment was currently their only option, and it wouldn't be easy to just get another one in the area. Mabel didn't know what to do. She wanted help, but also she didn't want to draw attention to herself and her grandson. She didn't want the housing authority catching wind of what was going on. She was afraid if they found out that she and her grandson would, th- uh, if they found out that she and her grandson would then be labeled a problem, mm-hmm. accused of lying, and kicked out into the streets. And that possibility scared her more than the poltergeist activity. Newark's public housing authority was notoriously cold and racist and could and would kick out families if they felt like they were going to be a headache. Mabel did her best to keep the whole thing quiet, but as the paranormal activity escalated, word would soon get out that something was happening in her unit. She and her grandson's lives had just begun to be turned upside down by what would come to be known as the Project Poltergeist, the first haunting documented by parapsychologists in a housing project in the United States. So what was behind all the activity? Many associated uh, with the subsequent investigation would come to believe that the entity behind the haunting was likely the ghost of Ernie's father. A dark turn in the family's history had led Ernie to live with his grandmother not all that long ago. Ernie had previously lived in Montclair, New Jersey with his parents, Ann Clark, and Ernest Rivers Sr. Ernest Sr. was a construction worker and also a Golden Gloves boxer with mafia ties. Anne mostly stayed home and took care of Ernie. She was frequently sick, and because the couple didn't have a lot of money, they usually couldn't afford doctor visits, which led to a lot of fights between her and Ernest, who didn't always believe she was as sick as she claimed. Less than two weeks before Christmas in 1956, when Ernie was eight, his mother Anne was claiming to be ill again. She told her husband Ernest, I need to go to the doctor. And he told her that the only extra money they had was for Ernie's Christmas gifts. They got into a heated argument that ended with Ernest Sr. saying, you're nothing but a doctor's bill to me. That night, Anne would later claim to have had a nightmare. In it, she'd say that Ernest Sr. was trying to shoot her with a gun. Stirred awake by the bad dream in the middle of the night, Anne looked under the bed and found her husband's 38 revolver, taking it out from inside his suitcase. She then fell asleep holding it, waking up again at 5 a.m., At this point, she'd later tell investigators that she started staring at her sleeping husband, and when he awoke, she asked him, Ernest, are you tired of me? And when he didn't respond, she shot him twice in the chest. He died tragically and instantly, murdered in his own bed by his wife. The gunshots woke up a neighbor who called the police. Anne first told them that her husband had shot himself after they'd gotten into an argument. They didn't believe her. 
Three hours later, she confessed to detectives that she had murdered Ernest Sr. On May 29, 1957, five months after the murder, Anne was sentenced to a term of 18 to 22 years at the Clinton Reformatory for Women in Clinton, New Jersey. And not long after that, young Ernie, who'd heard his mother shoot his father dead that oh, night, my God. arrived at the Felix Fold Housing Development on 125 Rose Street in Newark to live with his maternal grandparents in their first-floor four-bedroom apartment. And then not long after he moved in, there was another death. His grandfather died. And then, in April 1961, his mother escaped from prison. It was a lot to deal with. A lot for a young kid to try and process. His mother was still at large, her whereabouts unknown, when the events at Mabel's apartment in Newark began a month later. And why had those events began at all? Had it just took a bit for the ghost of Ernie's father to find him? Ernie and Mabel would tally close to 20 separate incidents involving plates, mugs, light bulbs, mirrors, and other objects falling or flying around the apartment in the days following his 13th birthday. One of the most intense incidents was when Ernie sat doing his schoolwork at the dining room table and he thought he saw movement from the side of the stove. He thought he saw a dark figure moving past him, a dark figure in the room with him. He soon caught the motion again out of the corner of his eye, and then following it, he watched one of the pepper shakers from the top of the stove start to levitate. Oh my god. Before rapidly floating over and then resting beside him. Shortly after this, he and his grandmother watched a glass float from the kitchen sink and then crash onto the living room floor. With each terrifying occurrence, the the two grew more perplexed and afraid. At two different points, Ernie and Mabel would leave to stay with her daughter and son-in-law, Ruth and William Hargwood, at their house in Belleville, the next town over. But they just didn't have room for two extra bodies, and they could only accommodate them for very short stretches. Mm -hmm. Mabel and Ernie were stuck in an apartment full of an increasing amount of intense paranormal activity. It wasn't long before other residents and the public started to hear about what was happening in Mabel's apartment. It also wasn't long before other residents started to literally hear what was going on. Neighbors now began to report hearing unusual noises, seeing a strange shadow moving and lurking about the project. Oh, God. Soon the local press caught wind of what was going on. On May 11th, just five days after this all began, Mabel's son-in-law, William, and another relative were visiting when a Newark News reporter, Douglas Eldridge, stopped by. As the five of them chatted in the kitchen, they heard a cup fall and loudly crash by the pantry. Just a half hour before, Eldridge had seen this same cup sitting on a sturdy bookshelf. The reporter turned pale when he looked at the shattered remains of the cup. It was impossible for it to have fallen on its own without some sort of push, and he knew no one had been near it. When it fell, Ernie had been lying in his bed while all the adults sat in the kitchen. Mabel's son-in-law also had been skeptical up until this moment of what Mabel and Ernie had been telling him. William said aloud, I was laughing when I first came here. He wasn't laughing anymore. A distraught Mabel told everyone present that that was not the first incident of the day. It was the fifth. Reluctantly opening up to the reporter, she recounted how a small mirror, a bottle of antiseptic, and a light bulb had already crashed and fallen since she'd woken up. Ernie then described watching another light bulb slowly unscrew itself before flying up and then crashing down onto the floor. Oh, God. The reporter dubbed the events at the housing complex the Project Poltergeist. Citing paranormal is common belief that poltergeists usually feed on the psychic energy of adolescence, journalists eagerly connected the events to the presence of Ernie. Again, was the spirit of his father trying to contact him. 
The housing development soon launched their own investigation into the activity. Irving Laskowitz, the Tenant Relations Division Director of the Newark Housing Authority, the NHA, took charge of the inquiry. Mabel was afraid he'd evict them. She'd plead with Irving, telling him, I don't want to move unless I have to. I don't think this is going to go on forever. Irving, initially pretty dismissive of any paranormal origin to these events, reportedly sarcastically told her, it can't go on forever. Pretty soon, you'll run out of things to break. The Newark News later reported that Irving and his team examined every inch of the apartment, as well as the surrounding units and basement. They could find no evidence of trickery or any physical cause for the seemingly invisible force that had been throwing things around in the unit. Later, following more activity, Irving would say, I only wish we had found evidence of something other than the paranormal. He, too, became a believer. The NHA reluctantly acknowledged that a strange, unexplainable phenomena hung over the apartment. The NHA even accepted the services of Edward Del Russo, a self-proclaimed exorcist, referred to them by one of the housing officials as a house to haunter. Del Russo said he had the ability to work with unseen powers. Del Russo came by the apartment to banish invisible forces, which he would identify as a lost soul trying to get a message across to Mabel. What soul, what message, he'd never say. He would, after performing numerous rituals, declare the poltergeist banished. But of course it was not. Instead, in the days after Del Russo's cleansing, the press reported that the disturbances returned with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. Around this time, a deep fear took hold of Mabel. And then the fear spread throughout the housing complex, fear that the spirit of Ernest Rivers Sr., as I've mentioned, was responsible for these disturbances. A fear that Ernie's dad wanted his son back. How angry was his spirit over the way that he died? Was his spirit wondering, hoping that Ernie's mom would show up at, their, at her mother's house to retrieve their son? And then he could have his revenge? Was he angry with the mother of the woman who'd killed him? Ernie tried to put on a brave face, but he was genuinely scared by all of this. How could he not be? What did his dad's ghosts, or whatever was in the apartment, want with him? The media coverage of all these events soon reached Dr. Charles D. Reggae, a Newark native and respected assistant professor in the Department of Management at Rutgers University with a long-standing interest in parapsychology. After hearing about the curious case, he jumped at the chance to potentially interact with an actual poltergeist. The 37-year-old professor was allowed to come to Mabel's apartment to observe Ernie the night of May 12th. Earlier that day, Mabel had been in the apartment with her friend and neighbor Yetta again and the two of them had watched a five-pound iron fly through the air on its own. Luckily, neither woman had been standing anywhere near where the iron had landed. Both women worried that had the iron hit them, it could have seriously injured them or worse. Things were getting dangerous. That night, Yetta told Dr. Reggae about the iron, and also about witnessing the cover of a sugar bowl lift up and fall to the floor earlier that day as well. Mabel shared more incidents with the professor. She told him that she'd witnessed a salt cellar, which is a large container of salt, recently launch itself from the shelf like a missile and hit Ernie in his back. Oh my God. She, Yetta, and Ernie had all recently witnessed a bookcase topple over on its own as well. In an even more startling incident, while Yetta and Mabel were sitting in the living room, they watched the TV turn over and fall on its side when Ernie turned the key in the front door to enter the apartment. It was Ernie. Dr. Reggie proceeded. He was coming from out. Yeah, it's I know, crazy. He wants him. Dr. Reggie proceeded to study the apartment over the course of two days. Just before midnight on the second day, a loud knocking at the door startled Dr. Reggie and Ernie. A loud, taunting voice yelled from the other side We want to see the boy with the flying objects. 
Several other men's voices were heard in the background, some taunting Ernie, others laughing. They all sounded like they'd been drinking. Dr. Reagan Ernie waited a few moments in tense silence, hoping the group of drunk young men would leave. Instead, one of them threw a rock through an open window into the apartment. Oh, shit. Dr. Reagan then pulled Ernie into the kitchen to protect him, and just as Reagan was about to pick up the phone to call the police, a glass from the top of the counter threw itself off and exploded onto the floor. Then, while Reggie was on the phone with the police, he heard a crash come from the living room. A lamp had fallen off the table and toppled onto the floor about 15 15 feet away from he and Ernie. Ernie, who had tried to remain so stoic, now appeared terrified and pleaded, Can you call my uncle and ask him to please come get me? (laughs) Dr. Reggie, who had still been holding Ernie at this point, let him go and examine the area for any signs of trickery. He recalled later, I checked the remains of the lamp and the cord to see if any strings or wires were attached and he found nothing. He ruled out the possibility that Ernie had been playing a prank. By the time the police arrived, the group of belligerent men were long gone. The police, not interested in any talk of poltergeist activity, soon left as well. Ernie's uncle William then came by and listened to Dr. Reggae and Ernie tell him what had just happened. Then, when the three of them were cleaning up the pieces of the broken lamp, an ashtray leapt from the end table next to them, grazed William's chin, Ugh. then flew into Mabel's bedroom, landing on the floor. Dr. Reggie immediately looked over at Ernie, who was holding a dustpan with both hands, collecting the leftover lamp parts. He couldn't have thrown it. William then cried out from the living room. A pepper shaker now struck him in the back. Huh. Growing anxious, worried about getting hurt, the three of them prepared to leave the apartment. Ernie stepped out first, and as William was turning off the kitchen and living room lights, he yelled out again. A salt shaker had now struck him in the back of the head, seeming to slow down as it did before accelerating, then changing directions in midair, then smashing against the living room wall, and then landing on the ground. What the fuck? As the three of them rushed to get out as fast as they could, another ashtray on a bookshelf near the door came off the shelf and landed between William and Dr. Reggae, nearly hitting both of them. Dr. Reggae had gotten what he'd hoped a real and undeniable encounter with the paranormal. A few days later, a reporter from the Newark Star-Ledger and the assistant director of the NHA came by the apartment to investigate again. And while there, the two men heard a noise in the hallway and watched as a pill bottle on a shelf flew and landed in Mabel's room. The reporter, sensitive to growing suspicions from some neighbors that Ernie had to be behind all these incidents, documented that Ernie was in his room at the time the bottle flew through the air. And that he would ha- and that he would have had to have, quote, teleported back and forth to have been responsible for the act. When the reporter interviewed neighbors and witnesses, they shared numerous additional paranormal stories. Nobody could explain what was happening in the Clark apartment. Several reported seeing a strange man-shaped shadow lurking about the unit, a shadow that terrified them. In early September 1961, Dr. William G. Roll, the director of the Psychical Research Foundation at Duke University, and a man considered to be a leader in the paranormal community, now decided to investigate this case as well. Dr. Roll had begun reading about the purported poltergeist in Newark when the story first went public in May. On September 9th, Dr. Roll ventured into Newark to visit the apartment. When he arrived, he learned that Ernie had been staying for a few weeks at his aunt and uncle's house, where no disturbances had been reported and that also no disturbances had happened in Mabel's apartment during the span as well. Hmm. Whatever was happening seemed to be tied to Ernie's presence when he was at 125 Rose Street. So Roll asked Mabel to bring Ernie back to the apartment so he could observe him there. And he would then observe more impossible events. At one point, Roll was in the hall outside the apartment when he heard a commotion. 
According to Ernie, an ashtray hit the power button on the remote control, shutting the TV off while he was in the middle of watching something. Roll rushed into the apartment to witness an ashtray still moving on the floor. Ernie was seated quietly and calmly on a couch on the opposite end of the room. Interesting event, but not a definitive paranormal experience. Then, just as Roll felt he was coming closer to figuring out what was causing the disruptions, Mabel grew agitated with his investigation and told him he needed to leave the apartment. As Roll began to debate as Roll began to debate with Mabel, something hard hit him in the back of the head. It was a bottle. Who threw it? No one was behind him. Roll had been facing Ernie and Mabel when he was hit. And when he was hit, Ernie remained calm and composed in the same position on the sofa. A bottle then struck Ernie from behind as well. What the hell was going on? Ernie went back to his aunt and uncle's place, and Dr. Roll, afraid of being attacked more seriously, left the project department and would not return. After a few months, Ernie's aunt and uncle no longer had the resources for him, unfortunately, to continue to allow him to stay with them, and he moved back yet again into Mabel's apartment. And in the coming months, the two reported being terrorized more than ever by poltergeist activity. The TV set, the washing machine, the refrigerator, even a kitchen cupboard smashed into the floor at different points, along with so many bottles, light bulbs, and more. Ernie and his grandmother lived in a constant state of terror. They were afraid this thing would kill him. Not knowing what else to do, Mabel brought Ernie to the Newark police station, begged them to take her grandson in to protect him, and they refused. They said there was nothing they could do for him unless he broke the law or was deemed mentally unstable. Mabel then brought Ernie to the homes of several different friends in the area. None of them could take the poor kid in for long because whatever had once been tied to the apartment on Rose Street now seemed to be tethered to Ernie. Oh, no. At each house, a disturbance reportedly occurred. People got scared, and then Ernie had to leave. The strange force, whatever it was, it had seemingly broken free of being tethered to the housing project. Finally, at Mabel's insistence, the NHA, working closely with the caseworker's supervisor from the Essex County District Office and a representative from the New Jersey Board of Child Welfare, removed Ernie from Mabel's custody and placed him in a group home. Heartbreaking, yes, but she was truly afraid for what might happen to him, what might happen to them both if he continued to stay with her. A short time later, a team from Duke's Parapsychology Laboratory examined Ernie. They, too, would record evidence of paranormal activity. But what was the source of it? One team member spoke of mirrors. <gasps> this is disturbing. Apparently, on the night his mother shot his father dead, Ernie was sleeping in a room that had a mirror in it that caught the reflection of another mirror down the hall. Some supernaturalists believe that mirrors reflecting other mirrors, in effect sometime recreated in carnival funhouses, are able to open paranormal pathways. People who share this belief advise you should cover mirrors like these at night. They say if you don't, things from the other side can enter our world and sometimes attach themselves to whatever they find here. What if Ernie's father's spirit, the night he was killed, never left his home? What if those mirrors somehow allowed him to make some kind of dark connection to his son that took a few years for whatever reason to fully manifest? Ernie would soon move from a group home to a foster home, then not long after that he'd return to his Aunt Ruth and Uncle William's home in Belleville. And similar incidents of glasses and items flying and breaking continued to follow him. But they proved less frequent and violent than they'd once been in Newark. And he and his aunt and uncle, they all just did their best to weather the occasional paranormal storm. The paranormal incidents associated with Ernie seemed to slow down in his later teen years, and then seemed to stop by the time he turned 18 and joined the Marine Corps. When he got back to the States, after he spent some time in Vietnam, Ernie settled back down in Jersey 
and he'd remain in New Jersey throughout his adulthood. He married, had children of his own, and soon the strange incidents of his childhood receded into family lore. Or did they? Did paranormal events really ever stop occurring around him? Years later, Ernie's wife claimed to have experienced some unusual phenomena in their house on numerous occasions. A glass would drop in the kitchen from time to time, objects would sometimes fly off the shelves, and sometimes something a lot more terrifying would occur. There's one moment in particular she's never been able to forget. She says that years ago, she awoke in the middle of the night to glimpse what she believed to be a shadow man sitting on her windowsill. Oh, God. Startled, she jostled Ernie to let him know what had happened. Ernie responded as though he had seen it a hundred times, as though he knew exactly what she'd seen, and he told her, just go back to sleep. Don't worry about it. What was on the windowsill, the ghost of Ernie's father, still attached to his son decades after his death, what could he still want with him? Ah, it's just so much. Mm Mm-hmm. Years and years. And so many people involved. Reporters. Yeah. You know, uh, paranormal researchers, the housing authority, neighbors, friends, I mean, relatives, everyone. Literally everyone. Everyone surrounding them. It's a crazy... What a fucking nightmare. Oh, my God. Truly... This poor kid. Truly a nightmare. And his poor grandma, Mm -hmm. you know, just trying to, you know, do the right thing by taking him in in the first place. And after her daughter murdered somebody. I mean, what a... Fucking nightmare mess. She was actually then murdered uh, a short time. It just didn't fl- feel like it fit the, the mom flow was? of the story. The mom was after she escaped. Mm-hmm. She she did she escaped shortly after she escaped uh, when the event started to happen. Not long after that, she was returned. She did get kind of an early parole. Not that many years later, and then almost immediately after leaving, she was murdered. And they think that she was murdered by mafia uh, associates for killing uh, one of their former boxers. The, the whole theory is that he was paid to take falls, oh, all that kind of stuff, oh. made him a lot of money, she killed him, so they killed her. Damn. So this poor kid, both his parents were murdered. Yeah. I it's like, crazy. I want to find Ernie and adopt him. I know he's not a child anymore, but <laughs> no, I just yeah, want to take care of him. Us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this ne- next picture I have, or this first picture, is a Google Earth image of the Felix Fold projects in Newark. They don't seem to be open. I did a little, like... Uh, Oh, what is it on Google Earth where you can like go down the, or Google Streets? Yeah, and you can move around. And I, and I kind of went. I went around the entire uh, projects unit there, mm-hmm. and they're all boarded up. All the windows, yeah. everything's real overgrown. Lots of graffiti. Well, and, and projects are are rough and sad f- for so many reasons that mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into right now. But then to have those old um, buildings, mm-hmm. it's just such a reminder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's a picture of Ernie, the only one I could find here. Um, that is the best you could do. <laughs> I couldn't find anything. There's no pictures of him. That's uh, obviously not there him. There are no that's pictures Linda, of him? Mm-mm, that's Linda Blair from The Exorcist. No, I could not find pictures of him. I, I'm sure if you really did some, well, I'm not sure actually if you did archival research that anything would turn up in the papers. Interesting. I, I, I don't think he, you know, investigators came in. But it doesn't seem that he was like him and Mabel were like posing for photos, you know, because they didn't, according to this story, they didn't want investigators to come in. People started showing up. Right. Word got out. But it doesn't seem like they wanted much attention because of fear of getting kicked out of the housing project. What an awful scenario to be in. You're okay. Mm -hmm. So you're in this situation. You don't have the money or the resources to get out. Yeah. I mean, you're doing the best you can to, you know, a night here, a night there. 
it's not enough. Right. And then on top of it, you're so afraid of making a complaint about it because you could lose your housing. Yep. You know, something just touched my head. Um, it's fine. It's completely fine. I saw some weird shadow in here when you were telling that story. Yeah, I mean, it is a crazy story. And I, and I wanted to update on that movie. Oh, yeah. So a film based on these events is supposedly in the works to be directed by John Ridley. The novel, oh. yeah, novelist, showrunner, screenwriter, director who won an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for Twelve Years a Slave. Uh huh. And and that uh, this information comes from a 2020 Bloomhouse production fan event. Bloomhouse, the production mm-hmm. company associated with this project, they've done a ton of fantastic horror movies like Insidious, mm-hmm. Sinister, Get Out. Many more. No word on when filming will start, but apparently Project Poltergeist is the working title. Okay. So, you know, hopefully a, a fascinating horror movie is going to come out of all this. I mean, I just hope that... I hope that some of the money can be given to some kind of relatives. I don't know yeah. who's alive. Is he still alive? Don't know. There's no information about his current whereabouts. That's so crazy because even even though they may not have wanted to be photographed mm-hmm. and, you know, so whatever, he's like, what, 70, 80 now? Yeah, let's see if he, I mean, I have to do some quick math here. If he was, uh, I can't remember how old he was when this started, but it started in 1961. And I know it says uh, 13. So he's 13 in 1961. So that would have put him around 1948. Sorry, you said math and my brain immediately decided to yawn. So he would be 72 or 73. Okay, so he probably has kids our age. Uh, possibly, yeah. You know, or, mm-hmm. or could. Or a little older. Yeah, a little yeah. older. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, well, what I like about that is that maybe, just mm-hmm. maybe, in my, like, perfect scenario, they make this movie. It's a huge success. They bought the rights, you yeah. know, to his life, basically. I mean, that's how that works. And that, you know, before, I mean, 80, like, you know, this is 2021. We got a lot of good science. So, hopefully, like, mm-hmm. he gets to live another decade and gets to do mm-hmm. things that he never thought he could do. What, like, I hope so. Whatever. I hope he has like a dream car, just whatever, a trip, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and then to know that his kids will be taken care of and maybe he at this point he has grandkids and college funds. Like I just I want him to be OK. I want his family to be OK. Yeah, me too. I can't help it. I want to find Ernie. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I can't believe that there's just no trace of him out there. I did a lot of searches think, like, based on his name, based on the uh, the project. Like I would put yeah, like, yeah. Ernie Rivers, you know, Felix Fold Housing Project, New Jersey. Uh, er, you know, Ernie Rivers, New Jersey. Did you try Newark. Ernie Clark? Because his grandmother's last name was Clark. Yeah, but that wasn't his last name. I know, but uh, yeah, Mabel Clark. Yeah, uh, she could have. I did officially I did, adopt him. Yeah, I did. Well, she didn't know. I don't know the story, but like uh, her, his name plus maybe. Yeah, I tried a bunch of combinations. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Uh, but yeah, what I was saying there is that like, you know, his kids would probably have social media. So it'd be interesting that mm. there's just not a trace of him anywhere. I'm sure if you spent days and days digging and went into like archival record, I mean, I'm yeah, sure yeah, you, yeah. you I get could that. track him down if you put in the effort, I'm sure. Sure. But even still, but I not, just think. You can't casually find him. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. The, to just be completely off the internet. I could Google your grandma and find her. Well, here's the thing though. <laughs> you you say that, but you, you know her, but like. There's a lot of Ernie Rivers out there. Oh. And, and not all the social profiles say the person's name. And it's not like he's going to say the kid who got the poltergeist activity. Right. And I don't know what he looks like. So, Fair. I mean, you can find a lot of different Ernie Rivers, but you're just guessing yeah. if it's this one. I, I would have liked like a a grid of them. And we could have played <laughs> right. a game. We could have played bingo. Like, guess which one is the real Ernie Rivers? Well, he must not want to be found. Well, I mean, of course. Yeah. Well, he probably doesn't want to be harassed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Very creepy. Mm-hmm. Does it have such steady activity? Yeah. Ugh. 
All right, you ready to move on to another story? Sure, let's do it. Let's head to Japan. Uh, We were just there with stories of ghost ships last week. I I love Japan. Japan loves ghost stories. Okay. There's so many. I mean, this is tragic, but they have so many ghost stories. Uh, We're going to take a look at ghost encounters associated with Japan's 2011 tsunami after a quick in-between stories sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking, and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. Head to factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 and use code scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code scared to death 50 at factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Thank you for listening. A little bit of setup on this one. Uh, about to explore such a tragedy. I got I got sucked I into watching all these videos of when this happened. It's oh God, terrifying. Why? Uh, lots of places we've mentioned before uh, have particularly gruesome pasts. Places that have seen violence or torture carried out. Places where human suffering runs too deep to end when our lives end. Where the legacy of trauma and fear carries over to torment people living today. Also, there's the commonly held idea that ghosts stay on our side until they've completed any unfinished business. 
And if both of these things are true, it only makes sense that tales of haunting should follow natural disasters that claim hundreds or thousands of lives and leave so much suffering and so much unfinished business. On March 11, 2011, at 2.46 p.m. local time, a devastating earthquake with an enormous magnitude of 9.1 rocked eastern Asia's seafloor. The center of the earthquake struck 45 miles east of the largest island of Japan. And this earthquake lasted for six minutes. And within minutes, the earthquake had sent a wave of ocean water the height of a 12-story skyscraper slamming into Japan's coastline. Some 128-foot-tall waves. My God. Crashed into Miyako, a city in northeastern Japan. Yeah, the videos, it's devastating. Water would travel inland for six miles. The death tolls would be enormous. More than 15,000 people lost their lives. So much destruction of property. A total of 217 square miles were flooded. Hospitals, schools, businesses, homes, places of worship, and everywhere else where people had until then led their normal lives. And some think a wave of ghosts followed the receding of the tsunami's deadly wave of water. I bet. Time now for the tale of the ghosts of the tsunami. Shortly after the tsunami, survivors started claiming to see faces of the dead staring back at them from puddles and streams and other bodies of water. Haunting, haunted-looking faces, their eyes wide, their mouths frozen in silent screams. Reports started coming in of people wandering area beaches long before real living people actually did return to walk those beaches. Many also reported opening their front doors to see the ghosts of those they'd known who had been killed by the tsunami asking to enter their homes. Oh my God. As though unaware they were dead. Some of these apparitions that often appeared impossibly lifelike, no different than you or I, would be drenched in water and also seemingly unaware of that. They did the things they would do in their normal lives, visit family, walk the streets to work, even hail taxis. Oh my God, that's crazy. One cabbie reported seeing one of these lost spirits in the summer of 2011. At that time, there were barely any customers. The tsunami had just occurred a few months earlier. This cabbie was out on his own, was shocked to suddenly see a young woman hailing him in a particularly hard-hit area. He recalls it all so clearly. She wore a heavy coat, even though it was the middle of summer. She was also completely drenched. Had she gotten caught in a rainstorm, the cabbie wondered? She climbed into the back seat of his car and asked to be taken to the Minamahama district, another hard-hit place that had in the months since the tsunami been largely abandoned. It was only after the cabbie picked this woman up that he remembered that it hadn't rained in weeks. So why was she so wet? That place is almost empty, he said while switching on the meter. Are you sure? There was a long silence. Then, in a voice that shook with terror, the young woman asked him, Have I died? (gasps) The driver spun around and saw that now no one was sitting in the back of his car. Oh my god. He stopped driving taxis shortly thereafter, too worried that he'd pick up another ghost, one that might become angry with him once they realized they were dead. A few weeks later, another cabbie picked up a confused-looking man in his 20s. The cabbie was used to picking up men like him. It was late at night. He figured the man was either drunk or tired or more likely both. The cabbie wasn't used to picking up men as quiet as this man was, though. He wouldn't answer him when the cabbie asked him where he wanted to go. Instead of replying, he just kept pointing forward. Always forward. Was he about to get swindled, the cabbie wondered? Take him as far as he needed to go and then the man would just hop out and vanish, not pay his fare? Finally, he heard the young man say, Hiyoriyama a mountain park near the city. 
The driver thought it was odd that the young man wanted to go to a deserted park at night, but at least now he had a destination to drive to. After craning up the mountain near Ishun Numaki, the driver dropped his customer off on a plateau near the summit. Then when he turned around to take his customer's money, no one was there. He'd vanished. There was nobody in or near his car. Oh, goodness. So many other ghost tales followed the tsunami. A refugee home in uh, Onagawa reported that an elderly woman had begun to come in several days in a row now. She'd sit, have a cup of tea, and after a time, she'd leave. Why was this unusual? Well, when cleaners straightened up at the end of the day, they kept finding this woman's cushion completely soaked in seawater. (gasps) even though it had been hours since she'd been sitting there. Oh, my gosh. Then when someone from the home finally tried to talk to her about this, just like the taxi passengers, she just vanished, just disappeared. In one of the most shocking incidents, a Buddhist priest named Reverend Tayo Kaneda was approached by a man named Takashi Ono. In a halting voice, Ono told him that he thought he was possessed. He'd lived a few miles from the coastline where the worst of the disaster had hit. Ono had stayed away from the disaster zone until months later when he finally went to reconcile with the loss of many of his friends and some of his family members. And then no one heard from him for a few days. Then when he showed back up a few days later, at first everything about him seemed normal. Mm -hmm. He had dinner with his family, sipped on a beer, then went into the backyard. Curious, his wife followed, and she then found him rolling in the mud, speaking in a guttural, aggressive voice. The next day he would claim no recollection of what he'd done. His family hoped this was a one-time occurrence, perhaps just his own strange way of processing the tragedy. But the next night, the same thing happened again. And the day after that, and the day after that, it kept happening. He would suddenly start talking in a strange, guttural way, and also he'd start threatening violence and talking about the dead. His family, now worried about him, worried for themselves, persuaded him to go to the priest who recited the Buddhist sutras and drove out these spirits in their area. He reportedly felt better after the priest's blessings, and if he still suffers from what sounds like some sort of possession, we don't know about exactly what went on, uh, history has since lost track of him. This priest reported doing many such exorcisms during the months and years that followed the tsunami, literally hundreds of them. Were those spirits of the dead that died so suddenly and ah, traumatically in the tsunami, spirits with so much unfinished business, were they somehow possessing the bodies of their former friends and neighbors? Were they refusing to accept that they now were dead? How many still refuse to accept their fate? How many people walking the streets of coastal Japan today aren't alive at all and maybe still don't even know it? That is crazy. Those are some crazy sightings, right? Those two taxi ones. I was like, what the fuck? I'm just imagining you dying and then days, weeks, months later, you're at my front door. Oh my God. Jeez, that would be freaky. How do you... And I think it would be so emotional because even though you know they're dead, I think for one split second, you'd be like, oh, my God. Of course. Oh, I'd be devastated by this. This is terrible. Yeah, it's horrific. It's interesting. I wonder, um, I would be curious to look into other natural disasters Mm -hmm. with high death tolls and see if it's a very similar thing. Yeah, such a strange. Uh, What was that tsunami movie? That they made. It was about the... I never saw it. I don't know. Oh, I watched it with the kids, I remember. And it mm. was the saddest fucking thing. I bet. I mean, they did a really good job of the movie, but it was just... It made me 
feel as though I don't ever want to be anywhere where tsunamis are a thing because it is so fucking terrifying. Oh, There's wa- nothing you can do. I couldn't stop watching videos this morning. Really? Just, yeah, just the waves breaking. Well, I have a few pictures, actually, okay. that correspond to that. Okay. This first one is a picture of the tsunami sending water over a seawall and into Miyako City. I mean, that is insane. What's crazy is right before that picture that we're showing now. Yeah, it'll be on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, you can see this car. Some of those cars were parked. Okay. But there were other cars coming down the road. They just had no... There's these people taking the picture and they were taking video. They're up on this hill Pretty high hill above the above the village or that part of the city. Sure. So they're okay. Okay. But and, but they're watching people and trying to yell at them. They have no idea that wave is coming because they can't see it over the top of the seawall. Right. So, so there was people right down there on bicycles driving along in their cars, and that and that water just completely in moments just uh, completely went over the top of them, and they were just gone. Well, yeah, because I mean, even if you didn't, you wouldn't drown instantly, but the wave hitting you would cause oh, you to fall you off down. your bike. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a perfect scenario, best case scenario, if you're going to die, you just want to hit your head really hard right. when that wave, wave comes over. Because, knock you out. Yeah, because otherwise it's going to be a big struggle. Yep. You know, just you're going to have fusion. Oh, can you? I can't imagine. This is ridiculous. But like when I think about sports games uh-huh. when they win and then they just like come up behind the coach and throw oh, that. Yeah. That is, you can see it in their face, the, the shock. shock. Uh-huh. So just, you know, a million times that. Yeah. And you're just so disoriented. You know, like, where mm-hmm. am I? What's going on? Oh my, that's, nah. Yeah, some of these people, I mean, yeah, they had, there's a, uh, Photos of people running. Some of them, like, would make it in, in other cities that I watched, like, or uh, videos. Yeah. Where they just, you know, they're just going about their day, and all of a sudden, this monster wave, you know, hits the coast and just starts rolling up into town. Fuck. And then there's videos of when it's, like, moving back out, uh, of it taking giant buildings and just ripping them out of their foundations and just floating them down. This Just, next, like, picking them up like it's a weed yeah. out of the grass. This next photo, this is houses being swept out to sea in the Tory City. Wow. But all those little, like, specks, those little orange specks are roofs of houses that have just been, you know, they're just going to get sucked back out into the water. I know that is the other thing about water is it's not as if it just comes down and then it's over. No. It, you know, it comes out and then it boom, yep, goes it back rips out. all the way up and then it goes Fuck. as far as it can go and then it, and then it just pulls everything back out into the sea. Oh, I'm just thinking about one time that I got pulled under really hard in the undertow oh, and it terrifying. was the most terrifying. And up until that point I'd never been afraid of the water. Yeah. I'd always like I would swim out really far in the ocean and mm-hmm. all, not anymore. Took yeah. one time. This next photo is someone who got really lucky. Okay. This is a reporter who nearly got swept out to sea in uh, Kamaishi uh, wow. Port. Shortly after this photo, the guy in the center there yeah. of all that chaos, uh, he got swept about 90 feet, um, you know, back, like he was getting swept back into, this, into the sea. Okay. And he was able to grab onto this dangling rope and then use it to climb onto a coal heap over 20 feet high. So oh, my gosh. So he barely, he was a journalist taking pictures and it almost cost him his life. Wow. And then this last uh, image, it's just a, uh, an image attached to an article in Japan's taxis picking up ghosts that I thought was a little a little spooky. She seems a little bit questionable. <laughs> she does. That does not seem like a good passenger to pick up. No. That actually looks like a real photo. Uh, I, I, maybe they, maybe I they mean, did. Maybe staged, they, yeah, staged, but like, they put somebody in the back seat. Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It didn't look like Photoshopped or, sorry. Um, God. Just how devastating. Okay, in the tsunami movie, which I cannot remember the name of, I want to say it was like a family on vacation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some survive, some don't. It's just so awful. Yeah, so so sudden. 
Yeah. So but, powerful. But I think I remember around the time of it happening, I mean, obviously, you don't know an earthquake's coming. I'm sure scientists out there would say, well, if you follow this and you follow that, like, you know, because mm. they've been talking about the big one in California forever and, right, things like that. Yeah. But I do remember reading an article about how all the animals oh, the day before oh, started like running to high ground. Interesting. And, and so I've always... In my mind, whenever I see mm-hmm. a, a herd of even just like the deer in our neighborhood, when they're all kind yeah. of like together and something seems a little off, I'm like, what's going to happen? You know what animals I would not pay attention to are doodles. Well, yeah. They, they don't know fucking anything. Mm-hmm. If, if we listened to their warnings, yeah. we would be freaked out about 75 times a day. Oh, man. And they heard a bird outside. No, that that's not them being turkey, freaked out. They want to go get it, right? But they they still act the same way. Hmm. They get they get they get weird. I have a little bit of faith in Penny. Ginger Penny's definitely not. Yeah, Ginger's yeah, she's she's cute. Penny was Penny is so smart. Penny's very smart. She's a smart dog. Do you want to tell them what she did at dinner last night? Um, uh, about Momo the replacement there. <laughs> Well, she did. She always does like these little fake outs with me um, that I think is pretty smart. Well, like if you go to uh, work out early in the morning and yeah. you feed them before you go, yeah. she does that very specific little song and dance routine when mm-hmm. she wants to get fed in the morning. Mm-hmm. She'll replicate that with me. And she did it the other day and I called her on it. I was like, Penny, stop. And she just immediately was like, all right. All right. I tried to get fed twice. Nah, you can't blame me. And, and then, yes. And then the other night we did a weird thing uh, last night where Monroe, we always feel like uh, Penny is trying to replace Monroe in the pack or yep. like or like go above her in the hierarchy. Right. You know, Monroe being the youngest. And so Monroe did this funny thing where she got off her uh, chair at dinner mm-hmm. and then went and laid on Penny's little bed. Uh-huh. And then Penny jumped up on her chair and then we yelled at Monroe. We were like, stop begging, Monroe. Go stay. Go lay down. Stop it. And Monroe would pretend to be sad. And Penny fucking loved it. Her tail was wagging. Mm-hmm. She was giving me oh, high five. Like a big old grin on her face, yep. like a little dog grin. She was like, "I've made it. Uh-huh. I leapfrog Monroe." Oh, God, yeah, it's so, so funny. funny. She is really, Where really. Ginger, smart. Ginger wouldn't think to do that. No, Gigi just stays under the table and is like, "Someone love me." Mm-hmm. She's so Eeyore. Mm-hmm. She's a little jellyfish Eeyore. Sad. A little needy. A little clingy. She's so needy. Real cute. Not real bright. Yeah. Sometimes, though. She's very athletic. She's athletic. That's what she's got going for her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, my first tale, I mean, I guess I'll call it like a little bit of a warm-up, if mm-hmm. you can even kind of call it that. Um, it, like I said, it's not the most obvious of scares, but uh, it definitely had me asking myself what I would do in this scenario and also like what is out there. Truly, okay. truly, truly. So without giving too much away, I wanted to ask you, what is your immediate reaction if we were somewhere and you just heard someone calling for help. Are you run to it or run away from it? Run to it. Okay. Well, I think you might be fucked. Because, I, I mean, that's my natural reaction too. But let's find out what happens to our friends. Okay. Hey there. I want to start off by saying I love Time Suck and Scared to Death. Yes, thank you. Some friends dragged me out to some of Dan's stand-up. And I've been hooked ever since. <laughs> thank now, you. Now, I have a story I've been wanting to write in for a while. I don't know if it's a ghost story or not. It's questionable. But it still has me freaked out about being in the woods to this day. Hmm. As nature started opening up again after the pandemic shut the world down, my hiking buddy and I were finally able to get out and go on a hike for the first time all spring. We were high on life and had originally planned a day hike, then camp in my backyard because, at the time, camping in Washington was still not permitted. After we finished our hike, though, we drove around and realized everyone was camping. It was like fucking spring break 2020 in the mountains, and we were in disbelief. 
we decided to hell with it and made plans to come back later that afternoon and do some car camping on the very popular road called Mountain Loop Highway. Hmm. We headed back to Seattle to recharge and grab our camping gear after the hike. We headed back to Mountain Loop about 5 p.m. As we drove down the highway, it was absolute madness. The roads had hundreds of cars parked along the sides, not a campsite to be found. We kept driving and still nothing. And eventually we got to the gate closure closure on the highway as it was still closed for winter conditions. We turned off onto an eerie, random forest road that seemingly led nowhere in hopes that we could find a more secluded spot. Driving down the road, there were maybe two or three cars doing God knows what. There were not any trails or attractions on this road. Eventually, after not finding any camping spots, we came to a washout and had to turn around. We hoped we could find a site going back in the opposite direction. We checked out a couple different options. One had a bunch of broken glass that sketched us out, and one required a bit of steep hiking down from the road, but we had wanted to be closer to our car. Finally, we found the perfect spot. It was... It was a mossy surface, just big enough for our tent. We set up camp, and we were having ourselves a grand old time, laughing and chilling as the night rolled in. We were asleep way early, since we had gotten up at 4 a.m. in the morning for our hike. I have a wearable device that clocked me falling asleep at 7.58 p.m., and I'm pretty sure it was still bright out. Anyways, at 9.06 p.m., I woke up with a jolt of adrenaline and my friend grabbing my arm firmly to wake me up. My heart rate jumped from 40 beats per minute to 160 beats per minute. I opened my eyes. What? What's going on? The look on her face told me she was clearly terrified of something. I knew something was immediately wrong. When I asked her what was up, her lips were moving, but no words were coming out of her mouth. I wasn't sure if she was in shock or just trying to be super quiet. I asked her, what's going on? She hit my arm as if to say, shut up and listen. And so I got real quiet. Suddenly I heard what she had heard. Coming from the woods, a little further up the road, we heard the terrifying, blood-curdling screams of a man yelling for help. Screams of pain, yelling, help me, help me! Oh my God, someone please help me! There wasn't another campsite or car nearby for at least half a mile up the road. So what the fuck was that? What the fuck? Possibly one of my top five nightmares is happening in real time. We sat up in the tent to listen to make sure we were really hearing what we thought we heard. Yep, we're fucking hearing it. My friend whispered, what do we do? Do we go? I immediately said, yes, let's get the fuck out of here. I grabbed my keys, backpack, and knife, intending to leave the campsite and just bail as fast as we could to maybe try and find help. My friend had a different idea and basically grabbed everything, tent, sleeping pads, sleeping bags, and shoved it all in my car without breaking it down. We were moving as fast as possible, but I was fumbling around like a chicken with my head cut off. I dropped my keys half a dozen times and couldn't see anything in the dark. I was definitely not smooth in flight mode. That scream was unlike anything I'd ever heard. It was real, and I could hear how real it was in its inflections. In my mind, we were in danger and losing time because we had no idea what was happening. Was someone getting murdered by another person? Were they being attacked by a cougar or a bear? Who the fuck knows? But I wasn't about to stick around and find out. We bolted out of there ASAP to try and find some help. We had no cell service and didn't really know what to do. The ranger station was about 10 miles from where we had camped, and by happenstance... There were two National Forest Service law enforcement vehicles and four other officers hanging out at the station that night. They must have heard about spring break 2020 going down. We pulled over and told them what had happened and exactly where we were. They immediately got into their vehicles to go check it out. 
my friend and I went home because we were so freaked out by the murderous screams. The next day, we called the ranger station and eventually got a hold of one of the officers that we had spoken to that night. We wanted to see if anything had come up. The officer said they went to the road and interviewed every single person they saw in the area. All of the cars and all of the people were accounted for. Nobody heard anything and nothing seemed out of place in the forest when they got there. I just don't understand. We still don't know what happened that night, but we know for sure we heard those screams and it scared us enough to run the fuck out of there. I have two guesses. One being that it was some sort of trap set by another person wanting Mm. to do us harm. My second guess is that it was a fucking ghost of some kind trying to scare the shit out of us or lure us in. After some research, it turns out a lot of bad stuff happens on this road. Lots of crimes, tweakers, and even some murders have happened there. Cough, cough. Needless to say, I'm never camping on Murder Loop Highway ever again. Hope you enjoyed this story, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Good thing Sam didn't uh, do what I was thinking Sam should have done in that story. I know. Because I was like, no, don't drive away. Like, run over there and see what's going on. I was so mad at Sam when I was reading the story. I was like, Sam, what are you doing? Exactly. Sam, what are you doing? Like, just leaving. But but if Sam would have done what I was wanting Sam to do in that story, nothing good would have happened to Sam. I I don't think so. And, I mean, maybe if I was with you. What if if it was someone trying to lure him over there? I know. But, like, would I? Okay, a couple things. If I was camping with another female and I heard that, I don't know that I would actually right. go. And I'm, ass- I'm assuming Sam is a girl. I, and, you know, I think it is because I think I her, she e- yeah, she. Her, her email is Samantha. Yeah. Um, assuming that her pronoun is she. But yeah, if I'm camping with another female, that is not my... But if I'm camping with you, I'm like, okay, like, I'll, okay, you go kind of check it out. It depends out, on what I have, back too. Up. Right. Like, she said she had a knife. Like, but, if I had, like, a handgun with me, right. then I'm going to feel a lot ballsier to go mm-hmm. check something out mm-hmm. than if I don't. Because even if it was... Like a uh, knife, I don't know that I would feel that confident with a knife. Probably I wouldn't. Knife, but with, what is that? Knife? Never with, never bring a knife to a gunfight? Well, yes, that. And also, <laughs> I mean, you have to get so close to someone right. to use a knife or something. So thinking about camping, I if I had a gun, I'd feel better because if it was a bear or a cougar, you could at yeah. least fire it even just into the air to distract it. Or at least bear spray. Something. Yeah, something. something. Yeah, but I mean... But it sounds like they were in a fairly populated area other than where they ended up finding their campsite was not overrun by the spring breakers, if you will. Right. So they were kind of by themselves. And then just how weird for the uh, Forest Service to go and find nothing, no trace of anything. Mm-hmm. Not not a single thing, nothing out of place, not a person missing. I mean, I get, yeah, like it makes you want, like with somebody, what? I mean, if you go the route of like it was some shady person trying to lure them. Then when the rangers investigate them, they're not going to be like, oh, yeah, no, I did that. I yelled. Right, 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 right. I was hoping they'd come over so he'd get raped and murdered. Oh. But then they didn't, so, you know. Right, Uh, right. Yeah, you're just not going to know. Yeah, just so crazy. But but it made me think about being in the woods, for sure. And we've told so many stories where, you know, it gets really quiet or you don't hear the sounds of the forest anymore or you're disoriented in the Mm -hmm. woods. I think you had that crazy story with, like, the missing kid. Um. Oh man, it was a while ago, but it was like the, some like rock here or, or time suck. No, here. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Where the kid just vanished. Yeah, yes. like multiple people were vanishing. You know, in this wooded area. Right. I don't know. The woods are really getting more and more creepy for me. Sorry, I, when you, I asked about time suck because just a few weeks ago I did the Yosemite killer, and oh. that was the whole plane on that fear of you know you're out in the woods by yourself and then basically a real life Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th shows up. Oh my god. And cuts your throat. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad I didn't listen to that episode. Uh, very rare occurrence. I did uh, also that episode. I did do some like uh, basically wilderness. I mean, I guess it was specifically for a national park, so it doesn't account for all the woods. Right. But in general, despite that fear, and it is a real fear, yeah. uh, you're more likely to drown in the bathtub than you are to be, like, killed down the woods. Okay. Well, that gives me a tiny bit of respite. A lot of people get drowned in the bathtubs, though. So, I mean. Well, you only need two inches of water to drown. That, that, actually, the crazy thing is five million people a year drown in their bathtubs. Stop it. They no, do I just, not. I just, I just made that up. I think it's probably, like, 20 or something. Yeah, I was like, are you, who are you kidding? Can you imagine if you read across the stat? you like, if I found then out, I would think ghosts for sure are fucking drowning people in their bathtubs. For sure, because there's no way five million people are that fucking stupid. <laughs> and I think that when people drown in bathtubs, mm-hmm. either a suicide or b mm, I these, mean, these these ones weren't ruled as suicides though. So I think it would be an accidental drowning. Well, that's in the bathtub. what I was gonna say. Or like it's you are on some medication that makes you sleepy. Mm. You had the flu and you took Nyquil and then you took a bath and like you just fell asleep and slipped under. I feel like is the most likely way that you're gonna drown in a bathtub. Right. Because think yeah, about it. Yeah, think about how you even you... fit in a bathtub. I'm I like, I am not a very tall person, and I don't fit. You know what I mean? Like your mm-hmm. legs are up. Yeah, I think you have to be medicated I have, or I drunk. I have some other thoughts, but they're too sad to share. Okay, well, so I, I'll, not... just, I'll just keep them to myself. Okay, you can share with me later. Okay. And this story is a little bit sad, so yeah. I, I guess I've got you in the right frame of mind. Okay. Um, yeah. So since I decided to explore that, you know, not every sort of haunting has to be the obvious kind that you know we generally look for. Um, yeah, I thought that this story definitely fit into our show. It's very different, mm-hmm. but I, I definitely think it's worth telling. Okay, now suspending like any desire to rationalize things as, you know, because sure, we try to sure. just suspend our belief here. I just wanted to ask you if you think that spirits can give you any sort of like warning signs and try and like guide us to find, to seek answers for something that is unexplainable to us. Hmm, Sure. Yeah, why yeah. not? I, okay. I believe that they would try and like yeah, give you some kind of signs of, or point you towards somewhere. Okay, I feel like I feel like that comes up in a fair amount of stories as they're trying to tell you something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really struggled with this story because on the one hand, my logical brain, like that knows how science works, mm-hmm. knows that science in some regard was at play here. But also on the other hand, it's like were was science and a spirit working in tandem? Like it's mm. a very interesting kind of yeah. angle. Um, okay, so here we go. When my family moved into the house where the story begins, I was six and my brother was only three. Though I'm not sure how old the house was, I know it was at least 50 years old. We were told that it was a nursing home during the World War II era. It was a two-story home and had wide doorways and ramps for wheelchair accessibility. My parents were very young and not at all wealthy. My mother's uncle owned the house and said we could stay there rent-free so long as the property was kept up. And naturally, they jumped at the offer. Things started happening pretty quickly after we moved in. The house always had an oppressive feel to it. Although it was large and I was offered a huge bedroom upstairs, I was terrified of being up there and ended up taking a room across the hall from my parents. I can't recount every spooky thing that happened in that house, but there were many nights that I did not sleep due to the woman with long hair floating above my bed. Uh. When I was around eight or so, my parents would leave my brother and I home alone to go shopping. I know, this sounds really bad, but we were in a relatively small town, and the 90s were very different. (laughs) One evening in particular, my brother and I sat in the living room watching a movie. Our family cat sat on the arm of my chair. Suddenly, this feeling came over me that something bad was about to happen. Simultaneously, our cat stood up on the chair arm and started bristling and growling. Then a light switch that was right behind me that controlled the lights in the next room switched off. 
This wasn't a normal modern light switch. It was one of those older ones that you have to apply a lot of pressure to in order for it to lock in and turn on the lights. It was during this time that my brother started displaying behavioral issues. My parents wrote it off as an overactive imagination, ADHD, etc. He was put on medication for it. He was a very hyper kid, and he did have a lot of trouble concentrating on schoolwork. However, he also began talking to himself a lot and had abnormal fixations on random subjects. It was around this time that I first saw the nurse. One night, when I got up to use the restroom, I passed my brother's room on the way there. Something caught my attention, and I glanced into his bedroom. I saw a woman, dressed in an old-fashioned nurse's garb, sitting by him, leaning over him as if she were examining him. I was startled, but upon reflection, she actually didn't frighten me. The nurse was not the only spirit in the house. Though I never saw her again, I did see the man that started hanging out in my brother's room. I believe that he was a shadow person as opposed to the nurse who simply felt like a spirit. I can't recall any distinguishing features other than the man was tall and slender. I would walk by and see him just sitting in the chair by my brother's bed. He never really acknowledged me, and he always stayed very still. When I turned 11, my parents bought their own home. The new home was a brand new home with no prior occupants and had a generally good vibe. Although we had to adjust to a new school district and a new part of town, things seemed to be going fine. No oppressive feelings. Unfortunately, my brother's mental issues continued, though. He was taken to several psychiatrists, and even and each one of them gave him a different diagnosis. Mental retardation, as in a significant limitation to intellectual functions, as what they called it then, schizophrenia, ADHD, and so on, and so on, and so on. All they ever did was give him a new drug and send us on our way. My brother's issues became more pronounced after he hit puberty and turned from perplexing to downright dangerous. He attempted suicide several times. He would become fixated on things like electrical wiring. We'd go into his room just to find that he'd taken the cover off his light switch and was messing with the wires behind it. It was just these crazy, weird things he would do. One night during that time period, I saw the man again. And again, he was in my brother's room, just sitting in a chair, watching him. He had followed us, or more specifically, my brother. My brother never got better, and by the time he was 21, he was sent to a home for adults with severe mental disabilities. This country's lack of real help for mental health conditions is appalling, and only and the only way we could get him the kind of help he needed at the time was to have him admitted. One day, while at home, he had an accident where he f- had fallen and hit the back of his head. He was taken to the ER to make sure he was okay. They did a CT scan and found one of the rarest brain tumors that can exist. After consulting with a specialist, it was discovered that it was a very slow-growing tumor and had likely been growing inside his head since he was very young. Oh, my God. The same time that I had started seeing the man. All the time, doctors had been throwing diagnoses around and sending us home with pills. They never thought to look for anything physically wrong. Most of the tumor was removed, and what couldn't be removed surgically was treated with radiation and chemo. For several For several years after that, every brain scan was clear and the doctors told us it was likely that my brother was out of danger of having it reoccur. I was still leery, though, because I was still seeing the man. My brother's mental disabilities were so severe that he could not tell time, count money, or do any of the very basic things that we as adults take for granted. We knew that he'd never be able to work or live on his own, so he'd be living with our parents indefinitely. Every time I'd go home for a visit, I would see the man. When my brother turned 26, out of the blue one day, he started slurring his words. Because of his history, he was immediately taken to the ER, and while there, they ran another scan and found a tumor so large that it had caused a stroke. This tumor was very different from the first one and was very aggressive. 
It was removed and chemo was started, but four months later, at the age of 27, my brother passed away, and I never saw the man again. What exactly was that entity? I'll never be sure. It could have been some sort of outward manifestation of the tumor itself, I suppose. Maybe it was what my brother spoke to all the time? And what was it before? Was it attached to that old house? And why did it choose my brother? We'll never know. I just hope I never see him again because obviously he is the bringer of sickness and death. Thanks so much, Holly. Man, sorry about your brother, Holly. And that story is, that creeped me out. It's fucking weird, right? Mm-hmm. And okay, so that's what I was trying to set up before is that like the science part of me, the logical part of me knows that tumors can just happen. Mm -hmm. They just do. They happen all the time, right? It's just like we all have, you know, things going on in our bodies that can cause cancer, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like you Mm -hmm. have all the makings and whether or not it happens or doesn't is not really controlled by us, right? right? Okay. But what if that entity had some sort of weird, like, power over this kid? Mm -hmm. Like, it just, if I'm going to suspend disbelief. Yeah. Like, is that a thing that can happen? Sure. I mean, there's infinite possibilities. Oh. Yeah, it's just yeah, just crazy that she kept seeing this thing. Well, and the nurse trying to take care of her brother. It's like, it seemed like a warning to me. Ugh. Like the nurse, this is how I take it. The nurse was trying to care for him. She already knew something was wrong with him. And his family wasn't catching on to it, right? And then... The nurse was only there once, and then it's like death came for him. How scary is it uh, if you let your mind go to that place where these things could create disease? Oh, my God. Like some some, some entity could give you something, could make you sick, and then the science is all there. And then on the autopsy report, and everything checks out, and, and you did have that thing, mm-hmm. but that thing didn't just show up randomly. Oh, my God. Something put it in you. That would be so crazy. Mm-hmm. Brain tumors in particular, I think, are so fascinating to me i had my mom's best friend she had a brain tumor for years and no one ever knew it until one day she was driving the wrong way down the fucking road oh yeah you told me about that you know and then it was you know years of like i mean it sounds so similar to this where it was years of like okay they got rid of it and then she was okay which i mean he it sounds like he had other stuff going on yeah but then and then it came back with a fucking vengeance <sighs> you know and it it a yeah. brain tumor i think will take you down in a, a a different kind of way yeah you know and they don't always look for it like i was also thinking about our kids stepdad's dad who had mm-hmm. a brain tumor for years and the doctors just kept missing it and his wife kept pushing the doctors like this is not right. right this is not i mean i think like three years of her Ugh. fucking like down the throat of doctors until they finally found he had this like was it like yeah. a golf ball sized tumor on mm-hmm. top of his head mm-hmm. like unfucking believable so if I ever start to act not like me, I immediately want a CT scan. It's your job to advocate for me if I'm being a weirdo. Like more Ooh. weird than I oh, already okay, am. Okay, okay, good. Yeah. Let me qualify that. <laughs> I was going to say, we should stop the show. I, I need to take you in. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, listen, I think there might be crystals in her brain. <laughs> oh my God. Can you imagine? You have the first uh, recorded instance of a, you have a crystal quartz <gasps> forming in the middle of your brain. Oh my God. I feel like that'd be really good though. I don't think so. No, if it was just like a little baby one, <laughs> if it didn't really interfere with anything, but just gave me magic powers. <laughs> uh, do you have some Annabelle's to think? Yeah, you want me to start? Yeah, that's how you start. Then I'll go. Then you do your spoops. Okay. I would like to thank the Annabelle's Molly Reb- Rebeck out there uh, in Michigan is the last place I saw her, I think. Jessica Tillman. Tom. Oh, this name is really tough. Okay. okay. It's T-A-M-A-D-J-I-A. And I looked on her Patreon today. And it's, I, I didn't miss a space. So I'm going to say Tama, 
Gia? Tamagia? Maybe the D is silent? It feels, it feels like some Bosnian, like, like a Southeastern Europe kind of name. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm don't know. really sorry. I, I don't, I don't want to get that wrong, but I know I didn't get it right. Hayden Parrish, Ashley McIntyre, Emily Allen, Krista Leonard, Amanda Werner, Gray Shaffron, Brandon Walker, Raymond Santiago, Kelly Trance, Anna Kreckle, Justine McIntyre, Sean Little, and Kelsey Larson. Thank you. Uh, okay, I have uh, the following Annabelles to thank for supporting us. Uh, Greg Jackson, Anna Granados, and this is a very Norse name. A lot of little double dots above vowels. Oh, I'm so excited. So I'm just going to say Josh X, Kostranzic, Kostranzic. Uh, Audrey, no last name given. That was very good. I don't know if that's right, but it was a very solid attempt. <laughs> Anthony Prophet, Deanna, no last name. Chelsea Huff, Robert Williams, Hunter Rowley, Santi, no last name given. Amanda Bug, uh, Steve Stoner, Alex Wagaman, Pop Pop. I know, isn't that cute? Mm-hmm. I don't know who it is. Very cute, just Pop Pop. Um, and Monique Romero. Yeah. So thank all of you. Good job. And guys, when we get your names wrong, it's not intentional. It's just... Yeah, and you just can't know. That's what's interesting. I think about um, a, a person I used to work with, uh, actually used to co-host a show with. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Andrea. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people would call her Andrea. Oh, and sure. And it's like, and if you don't know somebody, those two names are spelled exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And so you literally can't... And I always thought it was so silly for her to get irritated. It's like, they, that's impossible for them to know that. Right. Just get over it. Yeah, no, and no one seems to get upset when last names get butchered. My maiden last name is Radziminski. Mm-hmm. I have been called ah, yes, so many things that were not correct. And I never felt like, oh, how dare you not know my very Polish last name? It's like, right. no. Most of the times they're like, I don't know, uh, something ski, you must be Polish. I was mm-hmm. never offended. It's right. like, yeah, you just don't know. Right? right, exactly. And so once someone would say it, I would say to them, I'd say, oh, it's very phonetic. It's Radziminski. Right. And they, oh, I got it. Mm-hmm. And then we could move on. I, I, I would th- I think it's funny when sometimes it doesn't happen a lot. Cummins is pretty easy, mm-hmm. but every once in a while, because of the spice, you get mm-hmm. like cumins. Oh, I like when I we get Cummings with the G. Yeah, that I don't care at all because people just mentally add the G because it's more common. Yeah, but yeah, but 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 some people will get mad at that. Like, oh, did that annoy you? No, it doesn't. No, it's just a name. <laughs> just a name. It's just a name, and and we're all fucking human, so like it's okay. We're not mocking your names. We're not editing. at all. We just we're, we're giving we just our don't best. know. We're trying. Okay. That's my PSA. <laughs> Can I do a couple spoopy yeah. shout-outs? Okay. I have spoopy shout-outs to Richard from your yogi. Happy <laughs> anniversary. To Chloe from your dad. <laughs> Happy belated birthday. And I'm sorry I missed your birthday, Chloe. To Blake from Brittany. I love you. To Mike and Teresa from your son, Tim. He says, thanks so much for your support this last year. I love you so much. And to Evelyn and the Mitchells from me. Thanks for sending those awesome pictures of Dice Road. They, oh, after that episode, cool. they actually live very close and like, oh my God, why have we never gone? And it yeah. was very cute. I, I didn't want to put him here, but um, his daughter in like an STD sweatshirt Aww. out on Dice Road. It was adorable. That is cool. Yeah. Families that spoop together. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, that's all for today. Thank you for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith for the BadMagicMerch.com designs, including the new Scared to Death Live merch. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans for help with story curation. Joe Paisley for producing and directing today. Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation. And Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you'd like to watch us. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want to see more content. And, of course, to see photos associated with the episodes at Scared to Death Podcast. And we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers for Horror Lovers. Thank you to Liz Hernandez for moderating. 
And if you don't want to hear more ads, uh, if you want monthly bonus episodes, a merch discount, and more, please check out our Patreon. Enjoy your nightmares, creeps, and peepers. I didn't get too ramped up on my caffeine. Do I it. held it in. Uh, so I'm glad about that. Hope did, you were scared to death. Did you get a little... Ring! If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but have no home here within scared to death. Lemon, lime, and a drop of cherry make a simple Shirley. But what happens when Tito's handmade vodka reveals this sweet sipper's dirty secret? Stir up a Tito's dirty Sherlock and crack the case with Tito's at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.